continue in a series on 2 Kings, and uh, if you would please turn now to 2 Kings chapter 6 in the church Bible, that's on page 268, or maybe you have your own Bible to follow along. Hopefully you can see this in front of you uh, in one place or the other. This is um, one of the great stories of the Bible, one of the greatest, really, 2 Kings chapter 6, and um, it's great from a literary perspective, you know, it's, it's a, a little bit of farce right in the middle of a great tragedy, and it serves as kind of comic relief. It's perfectly written, um, it, it's a, a beautiful story of the underdog consistently outfoxing the bully. So from a literary perspective, it's great, but from a theological perspective, even more importantly, what's going on in this story is a message, and really messages, plural, because there's one message after another layered inside this story. And what, what we can do with a story like this is we can peel it like an onion, and we can get to more and more and more of uh, who God is, growing in our knowledge and love for Him. So that's what we're going to do as we look at this together. Before we do so, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the way that you meet us in this place each week, and you speak to us through your word. We, we praise you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to help us to know you, to lead us into all truth, and to empower us to live as your ambassadors in this world. So we cry out to you tonight and say, please, Lord, give us this spirit, pour out this spirit upon us that we would be filled to overflowing, and that we would hear from you tonight and understand and live accordingly. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to talk about the, uh, the different things we learn about God in this story. First of all, that God is a deliverer, and then that God is merciful, and then uh, right at the center of the story, God is with us. So first, God is a deliverer, and at its simplest, at the bare face of this story, we see God as a deliverer, a rescuer, a savior. You may be afraid one way or another and realize you need a deliverer. You may be walking home from the metro late at night all alone and realize that you need a deliverer. You may find yourself uh, in a situation where friends have turned against you, people are trying to to blame you for something, people are stealing your work or your ideas. You may be worried about losing your job or losing uh, your money or getting sick or any number of things. The point is that even though we live in a, a, uh, a relatively safe and relatively law-abiding place, um, there are still a lot of dangers and a lot of fears that we encounter all the time, aren't there? And um, they, they can ruin our life. Fear and anxiety are certainly part of my own life and probably for yours as well. Our God is a deliverer. He loves to come to the rescue of his people. And this story points us to God as a deliverer again and again, all the way through it. Not just once, but over and over again. Look first at the very beginning, if you look at it starting in verse 8, uh, this comical story of deliverance of the uh, army of Israel from the Syrian or better Aramean army. It's modern day Syria. Um, and at this point, Aram, the nation, lacked the strength to be an empire. So what they were doing was they were just a big bully and they were running around 
punching all the little guys, and they would come down to Israel from time to time and steal uh, kids and cattle and just give them a hard time. So God intervened in this story. He came to the rescue of, of the Israelites, and here's how it would happen. Verse 8, the king of Aram would make his attack plans, saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. And then verse 9, through Elisha, the man of God, the Lord would alert the king of Israel, saying, keep watch that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are going down there. So the Israelites were informed beforehand of every ambush, and the Arameans were confounded every time. So verse 10, the Lord delivered the Israelites more than once or twice, just like in the cartoons when Jerry the mouse always got the upper hand on Tom the cat. Every time, that's what's happening in this story, and it's just as much a comedy as in the cartoons. This theme of deliverance continues in the rest of the story, the, the larger part of the story, as Elisha himself gets delivered by God. Uh, starting in verse 11, the king of Aram was furious that his, his dastardly plans kept being foiled again and again. And so, verse 12, uh, the king learned that Elisha was the one. He was the leak of uh, Aramean military intelligence to Israel. So, he sent horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city where Elisha lived in verse 14. The siege was really frightening to the, the lad who was helping Elisha. He cries out, alas, my master, what shall we do? Um, Elisha wasn't afraid, probably because uh, God had told him this was going to happen as well. Uh, even so, they needed deliverance. And so Elisha prayed, verse 18, prayed to the Lord, and God struck the Arameans with blindness. And then not only was Elisha able to escape, but he also led the Aramean army down maybe 10 miles to the south to Samaria, where they themselves were surrounded by the army of Israel, verse 19. And so the Lord delivered Elisha and the Israelites once again. Deliverance is woven all through this story, and behind every deliverance is the Lord. The Lord, the God of the Bible, is a deliverer. And the Bible is chock-a-block full of stories of deliverance and songs and poems about God's deliverance. Why do you think that is? Is it merely because God wants us to know that he's a deliverer? No, there's more to it. He wants us to call on him as our deliverer. He invites us to call out to him because he loves to help. The Lord loves to deliver people. All you have to do is ask. If you follow the story of the Bible from start to finish, at the apex of the story is one, one deliverance in particular that's the most important one, uh, God's ultimate intervention in the world through the death and resurrection of his son. The story begins in Matthew with the Virgin Mary turning up pregnant, her fiancé Joseph plans to divorce her, but an angel comes to him and says, Don't do that. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, or Jesus, which means deliverer or savior, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means, deliverer. And that's, in fact, what he did when he laid down his life for us. He was crucified and died in order to deliver us. The cost was enormous, 
but it's who God is and it's what God does. He's a deliverer. God is a deliverer. God is also a planner. And uh, to some extent, because we are God's image bearers, we are also planners. Personally, um, I spent about the past year planning a trip that my wife and I took this past summer. Uh, We went to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary in a number of different places in Europe and Africa. And uh, I worked really hard to plan all of the details of that trip, working for a whole year in advance to get us ready to go. I don't like planning. I'm not particularly good at it. But I did it, and we had a great trip. And um, I'm glad that I have 25 years more before I have to plan another one like this. Uh, The point is that we plan for things that are important to us, and we're made in the image of God, and and God himself uh, had a great plan when it comes to Jesus. God did not think this whole thing up on Christmas Eve. He didn't just think, what if I sent my son into the world? We we get this uh, clear picture from the very beginning of the Bible when the world fell into sin that God was developing an intricate plan and every single thing in the world had to fall in line. The nations of the world had to align. The the geopolitical problems of the world had to align. Even the stars had to be ready for Jesus to come. And then just at the right time, when everything was in the right place, when the world was ready, God sent his son as a deliverer. God planned this because it was so important to him. It's who he is. He's a deliverer. And it's his invitation to you. You can rest assured that if you call out to him in faith, he will rescue you. First and foremost, he will rescue you through his great intervention in Jesus his son, whose death and resurrection brings us salvation forever. If you make Jesus your king by entrusting your life to him, then he will deliver you too. God will also come to rescue you daily in the big things and in the little things. The Lord loves to deliver his people, not only in big ways, but also in small ways. You can pray for his protection as you walk home from the metro when it's late at night. You can pray for his protection when people at work or school turn against you or when you're feeling all alone. He will deliver you. You can call out to him to do so. Now, all of this may be old news. If you grew up in the church, you probably learned pretty early on that Jesus is a Savior. You've probably heard this before. Yet there's knowing in our heads and there's knowing in our hearts, isn't there? And Jesus said that what comes out of our mouths proceeds from the heart. And while our heads may affirm that God is a deliverer, oftentimes what comes out of our mouths is our fears and anxieties. And we forget in our hearts this news. And I wonder why that is, why so often this simple truth about the Lord just doesn't uh, stay home here. I think when we peel off the layers of this story, we get closer and closer to the heart of the issue. So I want to invite you to dig a little deeper with me into this particular story and see the mercy of God. Um, Underneath the surface, there's also a really strong theme of mercy in this story. 
God is not only a deliverer, but he's also a God of mercy. Sometimes when I feel anxious and afraid, um, I have this thought. I know that God is a deliverer, but I also know that God is holy, and I'm not. And there are a great many things that I've said and done that I'm not particularly happy about, things that I should have done that I haven't, things that I should have left undone that I have done. And though I need God's help, I'm not sure about whether to turn to him. Will he help me or will he punish me? I need the former. I deserve the latter. What should I do? Our God is merciful, not only for those who have turned to him in repentance and faith, but even shockingly, he is merciful for those who haven't. And we see this several times in this story. Look at verse 10. For example, in God's repeatedly delivering the king of Israel and his troops from the Arameans. At this point in Israel's history, it's been more than a century since the kings of Israel turned completely away from the Lord and became totally apostate. God's original covenant with Israel had required that they remain faithful to him, yet their leaders had not done so. They'd gone after other gods, and they'd been doing this for such a long time that the countdown to exile had begun. Even in the last chapter, we saw in the last couple of weeks, Naaman, the Aramean general, was the one who had received God's favor. He was with the other team, not the Israelites. So the countdown to exile was well underway. Nevertheless, even after so much sin and apostasy, in this story, God was still merciful, wasn't he? He was merciful to Israel by continually disclosing the Aramean's plans to the king of Israel and uh, then helping them uh, thwart those plans. God didn't have to do it, but he chose to do it because just as he is a God of deliverance, he is also a God of mercy. It's his nature. Now, some may object and say that God was merciful to the king of Israel and to the troops uh, out of love for Elisha and the remnant of believers that were still left there. And if you think this, you're probably right, because that's usually the way it works, actually, in the Bible. Proverbs 11.10 says that when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. There's a wideness to God's mercy. His care for people often spills over the borders of the remnant to include lots and lots of others. So, for example, we pray for our elected leaders in this city, regardless of their religious affiliation, um, because we ask that God will protect us and the people around us, right? Um, we expect that God will do this, and it ought to move us even more to pray for the millions of people in this city who don't know their right hand from their left. So that's the wideness to God's mercy. Here's another even more surprising demonstration of God's mercy in this story. It's the feast at the end. I don't know, I don't know if you caught it in the reading. Uh, after Elisha led the blinded Aramean army um, out of, around his home, down to Samaria, uh, then he prayed for their eyes to be opened. Here they are, they're surrounded by the army of Israel. And the king of Israel wants to kill them. He's eager. He says it twice. He says, can I kill them? Can I kill them? Verse 21. Um, but Elisha refused. Verse 22. He said, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and bow? Instead, Elisha had the Israelites set a table 
in the presence of their enemies. They set food and drink before them, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went home to their master. It may have felt like a trap at first, but Elisha had led the Arameans right into the mercy of God. This feast shows another way that God oftentimes is is doing mercy, another way that his mercy oftentimes works. Um, He he is uh, bringing people to an awareness of him in order to show them himself, to demonstrate his power both to save and to destroy. And then because of his mercy, those who formerly opposed him choose to follow him instead. Think about the apostle Paul, who was a really bad guy. He was responsible for the martyrdom of Stephen in the early church, and he was causing trouble everywhere. And then God met him on the road to Damascus, knocked him off of his high horse, blinded him like these Arameans, and, uh, and Paul came face to face with the, the uh, great power of God. He had a choice to make. He chose to repent and believe, and because of that, God's mercy enveloped him, and Paul became the great missionary to the Gentiles because of that. God doesn't want to destroy anyone. He doesn't want to destroy any of us. And if you feel some distance from him, and you're wondering whether to turn to him or not, remember this. He is being merciful to you right this very moment. The fact that you are even wondering whether to turn to him Thinking of him, remembering that he's there, is a demonstration of his mercy. He's whispering his name into your ear and inviting you to come to him. So confess your sins to him, ask for his forgiveness, and then enjoy the warm generosity of God's mercy. The Bible is filled with stories of God's deliverance. It's also filled with stories of his mercy for people who have behaved horribly towards God. He will show you mercy. He will. Why not turn to him? Maybe it's because you doubt that he's even there. I think that that may be right at the center of the issue for us when we're afraid, and it's right at the center of this story, that God is with us. That's the central message of this story. It's a message addressed to our anxious and fearful hearts. We probably all know what it's like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and yet not to be able to say with David, I will fear no evil for you are with me. We, we know what it's like to feel all alone. We live in this great global city. We're surrounded by millions of people. There are millions of people you know, everywhere on the platform at the metro and in the, at the game and in the lines at Trader Joe's. Wherever we go, we see all of these crowds of people and we can, in the midst of all the crowds, feel all alone. You can even feel this way, you know, with good friends, coworkers, roommates, uh, whoever's around you. You can, you can feel all alone sometimes. Yet even in the midst of friends and family, um, this creeping fear, this creeping awareness that uh, God is not with me sets in sometimes. If you're like th- this, you need to know that God is with you. God with us is one of those truths, though, that cuts both ways. Uh, It has an upside and a downside, and this story reveals both to us. If you want to see the downside first, look at the whistleblower problem at the beginning of this story. Uh, The king of 
Aram had a whistleblower problem. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about whistleblowers in the news lately. Um, and a key question in that story is whether the original whistleblower, in fact, knew exactly what the president said on that phone call, right? In the case of the king of Aram, there was no doubt what he was saying at all. Uh, verse 12, one of his servants said, uh, when asked, you know, who's the leak? One of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, none of us, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king, the words that you speak in your bedroom, <laughs> he's the leak. Talk about a whistleblower. That, that's uh, crazy, isn't it? <laughs> that is, uh, you know, hundreds of miles away, what the king is saying in his bedroom are being transcribed and delivered to the king of Israel. Imagine how paranoid the king of Aram must have been from this point for the rest of his life, probably. You know, um, I'm reminded of when I was first starting out as a pastor and um, was invited to speak at this church. And I went there and uh, the sound engineer suited me up with a lapel mic. He said, don't worry about it. Just leave it on all the time. He says, I'll run the, I'll run the controls. I was nervous. And uh, I had a lot of coffee, so I had to go, and I ran to the bathroom before church started, and uh, I'm standing at the urinal, and there's this guy talking with me beside me, and he's like, hey, is that thing on? And I think that's how the king of Aram must have felt. <laughs> I think that's how he must have felt when he learned uh, that Elisha could hear the words that he spoke in his bedroom. Can you imagine? No wonder he sent horses and chariots and a whole army to surround one guy. This, then, is the downside to knowing that God is with us. Even when our words and actions aren't being captured on camera, even when there are no credible witnesses who can get us in trouble, God is still with us and God hears us. God knows and someday we will have to give an account for everything we have said and done. Jesus told his disciples, Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be shouted from the housetops. Apostle Paul also spoke of a day of reckoning to come. He said, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Think about how different our city would be if every elected official knew and rightly feared the Lord. They say integrity is doing the right thing when nobody else is watching. For Christians, integrity is doing the right thing because the only person in the whole universe that matters is in fact watching and listening and right there with us. That's what it means to live quorum Deo, before the face of God. Nothing escapes his observation because God is with us. He sees and he hears all. So that's the downside of God with us. It's not much privacy before an omniscient God. But the central message of this passage, I believe, is one of good news. It's one of comfort 
Because Almighty God is not with us primarily to punish us. If he were, his wrath would be immediate and final. Instead, God is a merciful deliverer, and he is with us to love us. At the center of this story, we find this love letter from him addressed to our hearts rather than to our heads. Look at verse 16. You may remember when we studied Psalm 23 some time ago, I don't know how long ago it was, but we found that right symmetrically in between the two sides of this psalm, right in the middle, verse 4, the the, the central uh, three or four words in Hebrew are, you are with me. That's the message of Psalm 23, right? And right here again, at the very center of this story, uh, framed on either side by uh, the, the rest of the story, right in the center of the Hebrew, verse 16, um, the core message, Elisha said to the lad, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Put this in context, think of this boy who had figured it out. He knew that the Arameans were coming in to the country, they were coming on these raids, they were picking up little kids and taking them back and making them their slaves. He had, he had heard about this happening. That's what happened with Naaman's uh, servant girl. And so he thought, I'm going to be safe. I'm going to hang out with Elisha because Elisha knows what the king of Aram is whispering in his bedroom. That's the safe place to be. So the servant boy is helping out Elisha. He's at his house. He thinks he's safe. And uh, he gets up at sunrise that morning. He opens the blinds, turns on the coffee pot, he looks out the window, and behold, the horses and chariots and army of Aram got them surrounded. And he is terrified, absolutely terrified, cries out, verse 15, alas, my master, what shall we do? To which Elisha replied, don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha blessed the boy, and he blessed us with this really great prayer. Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Not to say that he hadn't seen. I mean, he was seeing. He saw through the window. He saw the coffee pot. He saw the army, right? He saw what was going on. He just didn't see everything. And so God opened his eyes more, right? God opened his eyes And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And it was true. Elisha was right. Those who were with them were more than the Aramean army. You can presume the boy was no longer afraid. Wouldn't it be great to see like that? God invites us to pray. God really does control what we see. You know, you think about the rest of this story um, as, as you follow along. Not only does he open the boy's eyes, but he also blinds the army of the Arameans. Um, verse 18, Elisha prays again. Praise God, close their eyes, and so they get blinded. And uh, God heard both of these prayers from Elisha. It gives us some confidence to pray about God opening our eyes. And then Elisha led them down uh, 10 miles to the south, and they came to Samaria, which was a place, a mountain, and uh, a mountain whose name means place of seeing. 
and they were brought to the top of that place of seeing, and Elisha prayed one more time, O Lord, open their eyes that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria, the place of seeing. Again, when the king saw them, he wanted to kill them, uh, but Elisha also redirected the king's vision to help him see them uh, no longer as enemies, but as neighbors. So by the end of the story, everybody saw things differently, didn't they? And they all knew that the Lord was present in their midst. This is not the only story in the Bible, think about it, of um, enhanced spiritual sight, right? There are lots of visions, there are lots of dreams, there are angels appearing from time to time. A lot of stories like this. Perhaps the most famous is the one we heard in the gospel lesson, uh, the story of Jesus' transfiguration. Wonderful story of God pulling back the curtains for a few of the disciples to see Jesus as he really is. And they get a clear glimpse of him, and then just as soon as it started, the curtains close, and it's back to this dusty uh, Jewish man uh, wearing the same old dirty clothes, you know? And the disciples come down the mountain having had this great vision, and the next story, they have just as much trouble uh, healing a boy, a demon-possessed boy, as they had before they had the vision. And the funny thing about these stories is we're encouraged to pray that God would open our eyes, but we also get this sense that having comprehensive spiritual sight is maybe not necessarily going to change things for us that much. So yes, there is an invitation in this story for us to pray to the Lord and ask him to open our eyes more to give us better vision, to help us see what's going on all around us. But what is most important is not gaining the ability to see all that is unseen, because we're never going to be able to do that. Even in, in the consummation of all things, when we meet God face to face, we're not going to be able to see like God sees. We're not going to be able to see every wavelength of light. You know what I'm saying? We're not going to be able to see all of the different spiritual forces God will always be able to see better than we can. He's the only one who will understand all that is going on all the time. And so I think where this story is really driving us is to rest in his presence and look to him, the one who sees, the one who hears, who always knows the one who loves us perfectly all the time. Tonight's New Testament lesson we heard from Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, it's a complicated lesson. It's confusing to read. Um, here's what it's saying, and I think it's helpful to close with this. It helps us make sense of what's going on. Um, quoting Psalm 8, the author of Hebrews says, we were supposed to be kings and queens. We were made for dignity. We were supposed to be ruling by now, but we don't see it. We still, even now, feel the thorns and thistles in our work. Uh, childbearing is still painful. The world is filled with bandits who still surround us at night. So no, we don't see the glory of God, the glory that he intended for us. But the author of Hebrews says, what we do see is Jesus. We do see him 
died and resurrected and glorified. And as we look to him, we catch a glimpse of the glory that's intended for us. As long as we keep our eyes on him, everything will be just fine. I think that's where the heart of the story is taking us. We keep our eyes on him, everything will be just fine. We walk by faith, Paul said, not by sight. And we're following Jesus, aren't we? He's the commander of the horses and the chariots of fire. So don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You may not see them, but if you look to Jesus, you'll see the only one you need to see. Let's pray. So thankful, Lord, for stories like this and for how even a story like this opens our eyes to see you more clearly. We do pray that you would open our eyes to see what you are doing all around us, to see how you are protecting us and guiding us, delivering us, and giving us mercy. Most of all, Lord, we pray for vision to see Jesus, to see him clearly, to follow him uh, better, more closely, and to know your love. And this we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.